But to Jonah, all this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said? Lord, when I was still at home, that is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents on sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than it is to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? So Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city, built a shelter, sat in its shade and and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a, a leafy plant. It grew up over Jonah and gave shade to his head and to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. At dawn the next day, the Lord God provided a worm, which chewed the plant and made it wither. And as the sun rose, the Lord God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed onto Jonah's head, which made him grow faint. He wanted to die. And he said, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than it is to live. Then the Lord said, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I want to die. The Lord said, you have been angry about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. And should I not have compassion for the great city of Nineveh, which there are over 125,000 thousand people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, as well as many animals. Word of the Lord. Thank you so much, Greg. That is awesome. Uh, If you have been with us over the past several weeks, you know that we have been in a series through the book of Jonah. And if you're not aware of who Jonah is, Jonah was a prophet in Old Testament times, 8th century B.C. He was uh, a very successful prophet. He had a very comfortable life. He loved his country. He had a seat at the table. 
He was very well respected, and he loved his job. He loved it. He loved it, and everything in his life was going exactly the way he envisioned that it would go. And then, all of a sudden, God comes and interrupts his perfect plan by asking him to go to the city of Nineveh and preach repentance to them. Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh. In fact, that was the last place on earth that Jonah wanted to go because he believed that if anyone in the world did not, believe, uh, did not deserve the grace of God, it was the Ninevites. And so he didn't want to go. And so he went the opposite direction. He ran from God. He said no to God, ran the opposite direction. Of course, God pursued Jonah. After an intervention, he calls Jonah back to Nineveh again. He gives Jonah a second chance. Remember, Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days. The fish spits Jonah out on dry land, and God comes to, to Jonah again and says, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach repentance to them. So Jonah obeys. He goes to Nineveh. He preaches just as God called him to do. And everyone in Nineveh, not just Nineveh, the entire Assyrian nation repents and comes to faith in God. And because of their repentant hearts, because of their response, God forestalls calamity. He keeps calamity from coming upon the Ninevites. And that's where we pick up the story today, just as Greg so beautifully displayed. If you look in your Bibles in chapter 4 of the book of Jonah, verses 1 through 3, we see that Jonah was not very happy about the outcome. Not very happy. It says, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? What I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish? I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. What is Jonah doing here? Jonah is throwing a tantrum. He's throwing a tantrum. And usually, a tantrum is thrown by a child. Usually a child, but not always. He's throwing a tantrum, and tantrums usually come about when a child is coerced into doing something that is outside of their will. They are forced to do it, and they obey simply because they do not have the power to not obey. They do it, but their heart is not in it, right? And every parent knows that danger is still lurking, right? The child is being obedient in the moment, but danger is still lurking. Oftentimes, tantrums take place in very public places, right? In a public place, they oftentimes involve throwing oneself down on the ground, flailing of appendages, screaming at the top of one's lungs, 
about the displeasure that they are experiencing concerning the current circumstances, right? Tantrums are handled in different ways depending on the culture and depending on who is standing by, right? You've all seen them take place in grocery stores. You've seen how parents respond. I remember throwing tantrums in grocery stores. I remember how my dad handled it. My dad would quietly lean down, grab a hold of my hand, and squeeze the blood out of it. <laughs> and then he would bend over and he would whisper in my ear, you better get up off the floor of this Safeway grocery store right now or I will give you something to cry about. And I would get up and I would do as he says, but my heart wasn't in it, right? My heart wasn't in it. And that's where we find Jonah in this story. He has obeyed God. He has done what God has called him to do, but his heart is not in it. His heart is not in it. And he puts the capstone on his tantrum, Jonah that is, when he says, take away my life, Lord. Take away my life. It is better for me to die than to live. It's like something right out of Shakespeare, all the drama, right? Take away my life. Isn't it great that God is infinitely patient? Isn't it great that God is infinitely patient with us? What if God wasn't infinitely patient? He would look at Jonah and say, you know what, Jonah, you have a good point. It would be better if you died. <laughs> Right? But God doesn't do that. He looks at the situation. He understands Jonah's heart. He understands what he's going through. And he sees this as a discipleship opportunity. He sees this as a discipleship opportunity. And so he says to Jonah in verse 4, Is it right for you to be angry? What is he doing? He's trying to get Jonah to gain a little bit of perspective. Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out, sat down in a place east of the city where he made himself a shelter, and he was sitting in the shade waiting to see what would happen to the city. Why is he sitting there waiting? He's hoping that the Ninevites will revert to their old ways, that they'll give up this whole repentance thing, and God will have reason to take them out. That's what Jonah's waiting for. You see the condition of his heart? God knows that Jonah is suffering from a disease that many of us struggle with. It's called idolatry. Idolatry. Now, many of us, when we think of the word idolatry, we think of worshiping graven images, like statues made of wood or stone. And that is an example of idolatry. But another example of idolatry is simply putting your identity in something other than God. Putting something above God in your life. And it's, in essence, worshiping that above God. So Jonah is willing to obey God 
in anything as long as it doesn't infringe upon his identity. What is his identity? His identity is about being a prophet, a well-respected prophet, living in a comfortable home in a city and a country that he loves, where he's well-respected and everything is going according to his plan. That is his identity. And what God has asked him to do has taken him out of that. And if, if the Ninevites are repentant, that too threatens his identity. Because if the Ninevites survive, if the Assyrians survive, they are a political and military threat upon Israel. So Jonah wants them taken out. Think about your identity. Think about it for a moment. Is there anything in your life, anything, that if it was taken away from you, you would feel as though your identity was taken as well? It could be a number of things. It could be your career. It could be your finances. It could be your beauty. It could be your children. Anything can become an idol. Even ministry can become an idol, as we see with Jonah. Now, the symptoms of idolatry are worry, anger, jealousy, hate, unforgiveness, and fear. And what we see is all of these playing out in Jonah. You see that? When we have an idol, we know in our heart of hearts that that idol can be threatened and taken down. And we feel the need to protect it. And Jonah is trying to protect his idol. But God is the only stable identity that we could ever hold to. Anything else that we put our faith and trust in can be taken from us. Anything. Another thing that we see in Jonah in this passage, is his ignorance. The ignorance of his grace, the grace that has been bestowed upon him personally. His attitude toward the Ninevites and his rationalizations show that he does not see himself as a sinner. He sees himself as the guy who is obedient, God's man doing what God called him to do. So essentially he's saying, God, I knew that you would extend your grace to those heathens. I knew it, and that's why I'm so angry. I knew you would do that. The irony is that if you look at the story as a whole, from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 4, what you see is that Jonah receives more grace from God than anybody else in the story. He receives the most grace, and yet he's sitting in a shelter outside of Nineveh, watching and waiting and hoping that the Ninevites will be destroyed. Considering what Jonah has gone through and how God has responded, 
the grace that God has lavished upon Jonah. We might look at him and say, what is wrong with you, Jonah? What is wrong with you? I mean, how could you possibly be so far out of touch? Why do you have this, such, such a desire for vengeance? Why? But are we so different? Are we so different? Think about this. How many of you have seen the movie Die Hard? Yes? Almost all of you have seen the movie Die Hard because it's on every Christmas season. Right? It's always on during the holidays. It's always on during the holidays. In fact, there's an ongoing debate as to rather or not Die Hard is a Christmas movie. Right? I don't believe that it should be classified as a Christmas movie. And yet, a lot of people believe that it should, and it's always playing around Christmas time. The reason I don't believe it should be classified as a, as a Christmas movie is because I don't think just because a movie takes place on or around Christmas makes it then a Christmas movie. You can't then put it in the same genre as It's a Wonderful Life or Elf or... National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Now, those are Christmas movies. <laughs> but that's beside the point. That really is beside the point. If you've ever watched Die Hard, you know that Die Hard is a story about a New York City police officer by the name of John McClane, played by Bruce Willis. John McClane is visiting his estranged wife out in L.A., and, and his two daughters on Christmas Eve. And he's meeting them at a Christmas party in a high-rise in downtown L.A. where his wife, Holly, works. There's a Christmas party. So he shows up, and while the festivities are getting going, terrorists take over the entire building. And they take all the people in the building hostage. And these terrorists are brutal. They don't care if they kill the hostages. They don't care if they mistreat the hostages. Whatever it takes to, to accomplish what they want to accomplish, which is to pull off this giant heist. John McClane realizes very quickly that he is the only one that knows about what's going on. He is the only one that could possibly help these hostages. And so he single-handedly takes it upon himself to try and rescue all these hostages. So the entire movie is about all the antics that John McClane does in order to save the hostages, his wife, etc. And it's a good movie. Near the end, Hans Gruber, the evil mastermind behind this whole terrorist plot, finds out that McClane's wife is Holly. And that she is one of the hostages. And so he brings her up to the 30th floor of this building. He's holding her at gunpoint. And he's just about to pull off the heist when McLean walks into the room with his hands in the air as if to say, I surrender. And Hans looks at McLean and starts to laugh. Remember the scene? He starts to laugh 
And then McLean starts to laugh. And then the terrorists start to laugh. Everyone's laughing. And then instead of accepting McLean's surrender, Hans takes his gun, points it at McLean, and just before he pulls the trigger, well, before I finish the story, <laughs> before I finish the story, how would you like Hans to die? How would you like him to die? You want him to die, right? You want him to die. Would you be satisfied if in that moment a SWAT team broke into the 30th floor of that high-rise and they grabbed Hans and they took him away and you found out that he had to serve jail time? Would you be satisfied? No. You want Hans to die. But not just die. What if Hans ran into the stairwell, made his way down the stairs, and escaped out of a back exit, but then running across the street, tried to escape, he got hit by a bus and was killed. Would you be satisfied? No. You don't just want him to die. You want him to die a slow and painful death. What you want is vengeance, which is exactly what Jonah wants. So let's get back to the story. McLean realizes no one's going to save these hostages. He's in the room, hands up as if to surrender. Hans is pointing a gun at him. But what the terrorists don't realize is that McLean had taped a gun to his back. And just before Hans pulls the trigger, McLean reaches behind his back, pulls the gun, shoots all the terrorists in the room, including Hans. Hans stumbles back, breaks through a plate glass window, 30 stories above the pavement below. But as he's falling out the window, he grabs Holly, McLean's wife, and takes her with him. She grabs onto the side of the building. She's hanging on for dear life, and Hans is hanging from her hand below. The only thing that is keeping Hans from falling to his death is the fact that Holly is wearing a wristwatch. McLean sees what's happened, so he dives and grabs a hold of Holly to keep her from falling. And then Hans sees that McLean is in plain view, and in his other hand, he still has the gun. So instead of trying to save himself, he points the gun at McLean, and he's about to pull the trigger when McLean reaches down and unclips Holly's watch band. And Hans falls to his death in slow motion. <laughs> and you, the viewer, stand up and you say, that was a great ending. That might have been the best Christmas movie I have ever seen. <laughs> right? Because what you want is vengeance and not just justice. We often cry for justice. We pray for justice. But in our heart of hearts, what we really want is vengeance. We want vengeance against those who have hurt us. We want vengeance against those who threaten us. Those who do us harm. And we should never confuse the two. Thankfully, 
We serve a God of second chances. We serve a God of second chances. He is able to love us even when we don't deserve it. And that is what he is modeling to Jonah as he extends his grace to the Ninevites. In Romans 5.10 it says, For if while we were God's enemies, meaning we weren't even repentant as of yet, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more have we been reconciled? Shall we be saved through his life? This is a love that we read about in the book of Jonah. Jonah is a foreshadow of what Christ would do. Right down to three days in the belly of the fish. Jonah is angry because justice, as he sees it, has failed. The Ninevites have done nothing but evil, nothing but harm. They have blatantly disobeyed God, and God is extending grace to them. And Jonah sees this as a travesty of justice. And that's why he's so angry. Which brings up the question, is there a contradiction between God's love and justice? Or God's love and judgment? Is there a contradiction? A moment ago, I used the Die Hard illustration to illustrate our heart for vengeance. And I realized that that illustration probably appealed more to the men here than the women. So I'd like to balance things out. I want to look at this contradiction or seeming contradiction between God's love and his judgment. How many of you have seen the movie Pride and Prejudice? How many have seen the movie Pride and Prejudice? Most of you. If you have not seen the movie Pride and Prejudice, chances are you are male and single. <laughs> and you husbands know what I'm talking about. Pride and Prejudice tells the story of a brilliant and complicated woman by the name of Elizabeth and the proud and aloof Mr. Darcy. Mr. Darcy falls in love with Elizabeth, but he doesn't realize it. He doesn't realize it. And there's a scene in the movie where Mr. Darcy visits Elizabeth, and he's shown into the living room where Elizabeth is. And when he gets there, he realizes that Elizabeth is all by herself. And so he apologizes profusely, because in that culture, a single man would never call on a single woman if there was no one else in the vicinity, it, no one else in the room. It would have been inappropriate. And so he says to Elizabeth, if I would have known you were alone, I wouldn't have come. He's kind of embarrassed. He's kind of shaken. He turns and he starts to walk away, and then he says, it will not do. Some of you ladies may remember the line. It will not do. My feelings will not be repressed. You must allow me to tell you how ardently I admire and love you. So he reveals his love for Elizabeth in that moment. Now, gentlemen, let me tell you, this line is a winner. <laughs> if you are single and you want to be married, 
You should memorize this line. And you should use it on a date. Preferably not the first date. Because that would just be awkward. <laughs> My feelings will not be repressed. You must allow me to tell you how much I ardently admire and love you. Guys, Mr. Darcy is on a roll. He's rocking it. But then he blows it. He blows it. Because he goes on to say, even though it goes against his will and better judgment, he loves her. Even though it goes against my better will and judgment, I love you. And she rejects his love. She rejects him outright. And Mr. Darcy can't understand why she would reject him. And so he says, may I inquire how you so easily dismiss me? And she says, you told me that you love me even though it went against your better will, your reason, or your better judgment. You see, Elizabeth knows that true love does not exist in the absence of judgment. True love does not exist in the absence of judgment. True love exists in the, in the presence of judgment. We don't love someone in spite of their brokenness, we love them through their brokenness. We see their brokenness and we choose to love them anyway. That's how God sees us. He sees our failings. He sees our shortcomings. He knows all of the sin and the brokenness in our lives. And he doesn't love us because we're lovely. He loves us because he knows that when he loves us, we become lovely. When God shows mercy to the Ninevites, Jonah assumes that God's mercy is at the expense of justice. But what Jonah doesn't realize is that God is able to extend mercy and at the same time uphold justice. He can extend mercy and simultaneously uphold justice. How does he do that? God knew that his son would pay the ultimate penalty for sin. And since God is not bound by time, he can apply that past, present, and future. So God is looking at the Ninevites and he's looking at them through the veil of Christ even though Christ won't even come on the scene until 800 years later. When Jonah went to Nineveh, he didn't see himself as a sinner. He saw himself as being obedient. He didn't think that he was in need of grace in that moment. And God is teaching him that obedience is not enough. And what God is really looking for in Jonah and in everyone else for that matter is transformation. 
a changed heart, a heart that turns toward the Lord. When we hear the story of the prodigal son, for instance, right away we think that the meaning of that story or the moral of the story or even the story itself is about the father lavishing his love on the wayward prodigal son who has been disobedient and loving him back into relationship. That's what we think of when we think of the story of the prodigal son. But equally important to that story is the older brother who was disobedient, or obedient, I should say, the entire time, always obedient, and yet he misses out on the love of the father. He misses out on the love of the father, and yet he was obedient the whole time. He was with the father the whole time, and yet he wasn't with him. His heart was never in it. And so when the younger son comes back and the father wants to throw a big party to celebrate, the older brother can't enter in. He can't enter in. If you think about it, Christianity comes in two forms. There's Christianity 1.0, where we get to a point in our life where we say, you know what, I'm tired of running. I'm going to stop being disobedient. I'm going to turn to God. We get saved. But our motives for doing so might not be in the right place. Christianity 2.0 is an upgrade. Christianity 2.0 is where we love the Lord and we delight in him so much and we, we sense and experience the grace that he has bestowed upon us in such profound ways that we naturally can't help but to be obedient. You see the difference? Our heart is in it. That's 2.0 and that's where God is trying to get Jonah. He wants to move Jonah from 1.0 to 2.0 in the same way that he wants to move all of us to 2.0. Look at how he does it. In verses 6 through 9, it says, Then the Lord provided a leafy plant for Jonah and made it grow up to give him shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was so happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant and it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head and he grew faint and he wanted to die. It would be better for me to die than to live. Again, another tantrum. A lot of tantrums with Jonah. But God again says to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about that plant? It is, he said. And I'm so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for that great city, Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their left hand from their right and their animals too? You see what God's trying to do? He's saying, Jonah, take a look at your heart. Consider the condition of your heart. He wants him to realize how self-centered he is in this moment. How out of touch he is with the grace that he has received. He's saying, Jonah, how can you look at that city when you know there is 120,000 people over there that don't understand this? They don't understand my grace. They don't understand my mercy. And what you want for them is to have me kill them all. So what does Jonah say? 
we don't know because that's where the book ends. It leaves us hanging like a soap opera in the afternoon. You come home from school, there's nothing to do, you turn on the TV, days of our lives. You watch the episode, when it gets over, it always leaves you hanging, so you feel like you have to come home early again the next day and watch days of our lives, so you can find out what happened the day before, right? That's the way this story ends. It leaves us hanging. It leaves us wondering the same questions that Jonah had to grapple with. What does this mean? Do you care? is what God was trying to draw out of Jonah. Do you care more about people, lost people, than you do yourself or your own stuff? Why are you so angry? What is your identity in? Are you justified in being angry? These are the questions that Jonah is grappling with. And while we don't know what happened to Jonah next, what we do know is that Jonah wrote this book. And we don't know when he wrote the book, but we can be sure that Jonah wrote this book much, much later. Because if Jonah had written this book while he was in the shelter, or while he was on the run, he would have justified his actions, and he would have justified the condition of his heart. But what we see is Jonah writing a book almost as a warning to future generations, as if to say, don't make the same mistake that I made. Don't put your identity in things that are failing. Don't miss the calling that God has placed on your life. Consider the condition of your heart. And think about it. Think about it, how tragic this story really is. Jonah was the most successful of all the prophets. He had everything going for him. He had an anointing on his life. He had God's favor. God spoke with him in person. And yet he ran away, and he continued to run, and he never addressed the condition of his heart until much, much later in life. And so how do we remember Jonah? What we remember of Jonah is that he disobeyed God, he ran from God, and he was swallowed by a whale. That's what we remember of Jonah. It might not have been a whale, but that's how we remember it, because that's how it's illustrated in the children's books, right? That's how we remember it. That's his legacy. And I'm sure that Jonah would say, it could have been so different. Thank God we serve a God of second chances. God is looking at your life right now, and he's saying, I have a plan for you. I have a vision for you. I have a mission for you. I'm calling you to something that is beyond the vision that you have for your life right now. Are you going to run? Or are you going to fulfill your destiny? What will your legacy be? You see, a legacy can be a positive legacy or it can be a negative legacy, but every one of us in this room will leave a legacy. What will you, re what will you be remembered for? What will, you, what will your legacy be? Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you so much for this story. Thank you for this book. Lord, we all need a wake-up call from time to time. We need to be 
uh, we need to have our eyes open to the fact that we are ignorant of your grace and your mercy. That we have a, a tendency to cast judgment on others without looking at our own brokenness. And Lord, we should just be grateful that you are a compassionate and loving God who gives second chances. Lord, I pray that we would always, always remember that and that we would run hard after you, that we would embrace the destiny that you have prepared for us and that we would all leave a legacy that we would be proud of that would impact future generations for thousands and thousands of years. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.